to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman, and this is The Friedman Report. You know, it's a good thing that New York Governor Andrew Cuomo decided not to run for president. He would have been exposed for the miserable worm that he is, or worse. He just came out this week with a new statement about the nursing home deaths in New York State. Not only is he still not willing to take responsibility for the horrific death toll at New York nursing homes, deaths that were caused directly by his mismanagement of the COVID-19 crisis in New York, he's blaming it on everyone but himself. And that wasn't all he did wrong. We'll get to the other things in a minute, but this was the worst of all. On March 25th, Cuomo issued an executive order that required nursing homes to accept COVID-19 patients without being tested. In fact, it said specifically that they were not to test incoming COVID-19 patients. They weren't even allowed to ask. And they were forced to bring them into their facilities where the most vulnerable people, the elderly and the chronically ill, were being cared for. These homes didn't have the capability to deal with the COVID-19 cases and they couldn't isolate their patients. And once the new patients were admitted, the people who had already been there were not allowed to go home to their families. According to the executive order, the nursing homes were not allowed to refuse to accept these patients. So what happened? Estimates of the number of nursing home patients who died because of this horrifically irresponsible and totally thoughtless order have exceeded 6,200 people. 6,200 people died because of this order. It wasn't as if these nursing homes were the only places that COVID-19 patients could have been sent. Beside the fact that they were the last place they should have gone, there were other options. Just the week before Cuomo wrote his executive order, President Trump had authorized the deployment to Manhattan of the 1,000-bed hospital ship USSN Comfort, the largest hospital ship in the world. The Comfort, with its 1,200-person crew and medical staff, was meant to provide 1,000 more beds to help what Cuomo suggested would be a terrible crush of patients that the city would not be able to handle on its own. The president also helped New York City set up a second emergency treatment center at the Javits Convention Center in the center of Manhattan with 2,500 more beds. And when the crush of non-COVID patients never came from the New York City hospitals, the two sites with 3,500 beds were converted into COVID-19 capable sites, and they were ready to handle all the non-COVID patients at first, and then all the COVID patients that Cuomo could send. He didn't have to send them to the nursing homes. Here's one story about the tragic results of Cuomo's terrible executive order. And sadly, it's only one of many. In one Brooklyn nursing home, The CEO said that he had been begging the state agencies to move some of these patients to the new wards at the Javits Center and aboard the Comfort instead of sending them to his nursing home. 
He was told that only patients from hospitals could be sent to these sites. And they also told him that despite his insistence to the contrary, his own facility was fully capable of handling the demands of the crisis. Full stop. Only it wasn't. And 55 of his residents died as a result. And to add to the tragedy, neither the Comfort or the Javits Center was ever filled to capacity, not even close. When the Comfort left New York at the end of April, it had treated only 182 patients. And the field hospital that was set up at the Javits Center for non-COVID patients and then was retrofitted to receive 2,500 COVID-19 patients never had more than a few hundred patients at any one time. Together, these two hugely expensive sites with 3,500 beds and more than 2,000 medical staff served a total of 1,100 patients, while elderly patients in nursing homes died from exposure to the virus. Cuomo still refuses to take any responsibility for this disaster. He blames it on the police. He blames it on politics and on the federal government. Everybody but himself. Heaven forfend that he should even take an iota of responsibility for it. And this order was issued over his signature. Cuomo had no qualms about forcing nursing homes, which housed the most vulnerable members of New York's population, to take in active COVID-19 patients and risk the lives of every one of them. He called it their, quote, basic fiduciary obligation, unquote, which is absolute rubbish. What Andrew Cuomo did was unconscionable, and to my mind, it was nothing short of murder. We all knew it at the time, but no one had the authority to rescind that order, and no one had the guts to confront him on it. And what was worse, the people who died from the coronavirus as a result of his hubris and his total disregard for the lives of others, these people, the elderly and the chronically ill, died alone because their families were prevented from visiting them. Cuomo even had the temerity while all this was happening and the residents of nursing homes were still being unnecessarily exposed and still dying. He even pretended that he didn't know anything about it. When a reporter asked him about it at one of his daily press conferences, he just turned innocently, sure, to an aide, and he asked, quote, what do we know about that? Unquote. Really? He signed that order. It's not remotely possible that he didn't know about it. When I first heard about this malevolent executive order, I was horrified. We all knew what the consequences would be. People would die. A lot of people. And they were people who couldn't escape from the nursing homes that became their death traps, from the deadly virus that he knowingly inflicted on them. And there's more. When the pandemic first appeared in New York State, Cuomo began a series of hysterical demands to the president. First, he demanded 40,000 ventilators. Cuomo claimed that he had expert projections showing that he would need up to 140,000 beds and 40,000 ventilators. Quote, he said, quote, 
I don't operate here on opinion. I operate on facts and on data and on numbers and on projections, unquote. Now, of course, we know he was dead wrong. Cuomo's estimates and hysterical demands to the president were dead wrong. They were wildly inflated, and in light of the raging crisis, they were inexcusable because he was demanding equipment that he didn't need that could be used all over the country. Because in the middle of this pandemic, every hospital bed, every ventilator, every nurse and doctor was in great demand and seriously overworked. But when Washington delivered not 40,000, but 4,000 ventilators to New York, Cuomo complained bitterly. He said, quote, what am I going to do with 4,000 ventilators when I need 40,000, unquote. But at the end of March, Cuomo admitted that the state already had a stockpile of unused ventilators that they held in reserve. He said, quote, the point is that we have ventilators in a stockpile, but we didn't send them to the hospitals yet. The hospitals don't need them yet, he said. And it got worse because only two weeks later, he announced that he would send 100 ventilators to Michigan and 50 ventilators to Maryland. What a guy. So they not only didn't need 40,000 ventilators, they already had too many of them, more than they needed. Andrew Cuomo is a self-satisfied, pompous ass. He is also a liar, and to put it bluntly, directly responsible for the deaths of thousands of elderly people because of his careless and criminal disregard for their lives. Andrew Cuomo has no business being governor of one of the most populous states in the country and home to its largest city. In fact, in my humble opinion, Andrew Cuomo deserves to be in prison for a long time long time. Okay, let's switch topics now. If you've been watching the news, and who hasn't these last few weeks, you've been hearing a lot about Black Lives Matter. It's practically all anyone has been talking about. How they've been demonstrating, mostly peaceful demonstrations as far as the general public can tell, in cities all over the country. And they took over a section of Seattle, Washington, and wreaked chaos in the process, destroying businesses, driving people out of the city, and making it generally unlivable for just about everybody. The part of the city that they took over now looks like a war zone. And that's not far from the reality because it has become a war zone. People are being shot. One was killed. And they don't let the police or the ambulances come into the zone. This is total anarchy. Well, if you've been under the impression that these demonstrations were a spontaneous response to the killing of George Floyd in Minneapolis, or if you thought that they were just grassroots groups of people protesting social injustice, or if you thought that Black Lives Matter was just a ragtag group of people fighting for racial equality, well, you'd be wrong on all counts. Have you ever wondered how the Black Lives Matter demonstrations and riots sprung up all at once, suddenly? almost immediately after George Floyd was killed? Did you think that was spontaneous? It looked spontaneous. It was supposed to do that. But behind the curtain, it was well-organized and well-funded. Did you know, for example, that Black Lives Matter is, in fact, and according to the website, blacklivesmatter.com, there is a Black Lives Matter foundation, and it's worth a lot of money.
The website says, Black Lives Matter Foundation is a global organization in the United States, United Kingdom, and Canada, whose mission is to eradicate white supremacy and build local power to intervene in violence inflicted on black communities by the state and vigilantes, unquote. So forget about the ragtag part because their website just announced this, quote, Black Lives Matter Global Network Foundation is grateful for the generosity and support of its donors and is pleased to announce a $6.5 million fund to support grassroots organizing work. Unquote. Get that? And they go on, quote, This fund is available to all chapters affiliated with BLM Global Networks Foundation. Starting July 1st, 2020, affiliated chapters may apply for unrestricted grant funding of up to $500,000, that's a half a million, in multi-year grants, unquote. So Black Lives Matters, it seems, is much more than a grassroots protest group. It is a highly organized and extremely wealthy not-for-profit organization that has branches in the United States, Canada, and the United Kingdom, and it is pouring money into its operations in all three countries. The Daily Caller News Foundation published a very interesting article about all this by Andrew Kerr just this week, in which the funding of Black Lives Matter was unmasked. Let me read a small part of it to you. Kerr reported that the national arm of Black Lives Matter spent millions on consultants, travel, and compensation for its own staff between July 2017 and June 2019, according to audited financial statements prepared by its fiscal sponsor, Thousand Currents. BLM Global Network spent $899,000 on travel, $1.6 million on consultants, and $2.1 million on personnel costs during its 2017, 18, and 19 fiscal years. Unquote. So that's the real story behind Black Lives Matter. It is apparently not simply a grassroots civil justice movement. It's a money machine. And wait, there's more. The Ford Foundation and Borealis Philanthropy have just announced that they have formed something called Black-Led Movement Fund, BLMF, which plans to raise $100 million for the Movement for Black Lives Coalition. And that is in addition to more than $33 million in grants earmarked for Black Lives Matter, and it comes from top Democrat Party donor, George Soros, funneled through his Open Society Foundations and the Center for American Progress. These foundations are affiliated with Movement for Black Lives, which, in addition to being rabidly left-wing, they also support the lie about Israel being an apartheid state, which is guilty of genocide. So this isn't just about black equality in the United States. This is suddenly international and anti-Semitic. And they have built that lie into their platform. And the same platform also supports defunding police departments, reparations, voting rights for illegal immigrants, divestment from fossil fuel production, eliminating private education and charter schools, creating a, quote, universal basic income, unquote, and free college for blacks. And so there's a lot more to BLM than just helping blacks in America find more justice in their lives. 
The Ford Foundation, by the way, is the fifth largest philanthropy in the country. It has $12.4 billion in assets. Just saying. Well, my friends, that's a lot to take in. What a surprise that the popular movement that has virtually taken over cities throughout the country is not at all what it seems, and that many people who are fervent followers of the movement because they think it is virtuous and honorable would no doubt be shocked to know how well orchestrated these demonstrations are and how the big money from the white elite is funding their Black Lives Matter movement. BLM could also stand for Big Lucrative Money Machine, which is using earnest liberal millennials to do their dirty work in the name of racial justice. And their dirty work is the destruction of America as we know it. Now, after the break, I want to talk about the latest Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma. And I can't mention that without also mentioning the dirty tricks that the Democrats have been ramping up to bring down our president and our country. Stay tuned. Did you know the average person spends 26 years of their life sleeping? The real troubling statistic is that we spend seven years of our life trying to get to sleep, struggling with racing minds, tossing and turning. If you're one of the millions of Americans who need better quality sleep, the time to change is now. Sleep is proven to extend our lifespan, protect against terrible diseases like cancer, heart disease, and dementia, make us more attractive and thinner, feel calmer and happier, and boost energy levels, memory, and performance. Until now, most sleep supplements haven't worked, but a new easy-to-swallow sleep gel invented by the leading nutrition company Healthy Cell is designed to support all four stages of human sleep to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, sleep deep, and wake up refreshed. It's called REM sleep. To get a free two-night supply of REM sleep, visit HealthyCell.com sleep. That's Healthy, C-E-L-L dot com slash sleep. Well, the Democrats are brushing up on their dirty tricks, and they were out in full force for the Trump rally in Tulsa, Oklahoma on Saturday evening. Apparently, according to our old friend Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, scores may be hundreds of American teenagers and foreign K-pop fans used TikTok. That's a Chinese social media site for short-form videos. And they used TikTok in order to get a message out that they needed as many people as possible to send for free tickets to President Trump's first rally since the COVID-19 shutdown. The idea was that they would request masses of tickets that they had no intention of using. And then when they didn't show up, that would leave thousands of empty seats in the arena that seats some 19,000 people. We don't actually know how many kids participated, but I wonder how many were even old enough to vote. And yet, they tried to disrupt an election campaign using foreign software and coming dangerously close to breaking more than a couple of election laws. After the event, where the mainstream media made absolutely sure that we could see all the empty blue seats in the balcony, AOC sent out this tweet, presumably to President Trump. She said, actually, you just got rocked by teens on TikTok who flooded the Trump campaign with fake ticket reservations and tricked you into believing a million people wanted your white supremacist open mic enough to pack an arena during COVID. Shout out to Zoomers. Y'all make me so proud. Unquote. 
AOC is a piece of work, as you all know. That y'all is as phony as a $3 bill. She's not from the South. She's from the Bronx. Whether or not there were enough of these phony invitation requests to actually sabotage the rally, it is bizarre that AOC is proud of the interference that these teens tried to create to damage the president's rally. It shows what a shabby sense of morals she has. But we knew that. The probability is that there were not nearly enough of these teenage ninjas to do as much damage as she would have liked. But the fact that she thought it was hilarious and was so proud of the effort says it all. Like most politicians, she bought into it and capitalized on it to get her face in the limelight again. The truth is that she has no concept of or interest in fair play. Maybe because she's afraid that if she plays fair, she won't win. And if what she said were really true, aren't these teens from who knows where meddling in the election campaign using a Chinese application and perhaps foreign players to influence an American election? Just a thought. Anyway, this was one of the Democrats' dirty tricks, and one that may have had a small measure of success. It's one of the many they have pulled out of the hat ever since Donald Trump came down that escalator and said he was running for president. We know the Democrats. This is what they do. Maybe because... They can't play fair, because if they played fair, they would lose. We may never know how many fraudulent ticket reservations actually came in. But the fact that AOC crowed about it and told the TV boppers who populate TikTok how proud she was just proves, if you need proof, what a jerk she really is and how unethical she is willing to be in order to embarrass the president and, ultimately, to bring him down. So on Tuesday night, we watched with great interest to see how she fared in her primary election. And we'll get to that in a bit. This TikTok scam wasn't the only dirty trick that the Republicans had to deal with on Saturday night. Angry anti-Trump crowds who also showed up outside the event got into fights and prevented some of the real attendees, the ticket holders, from attending by blocking the metal detectors so they couldn't get in. But you know, my friends, this was just the first stop on the Trump train's new campaign, and there are still a little more than four months until Election Day. So two questions here. Will Trump win in November? We don't know yet, of course, and we won't know for sure until the night of November 3rd. But the rally, even given the smaller-than-expected crowd, was a smashing success. And the second question, how many more stunts like this will the Democrats pull? And how far do you think they're willing to go in order to derail Trump's train? That's a question, and we don't know the answer yet. Another unknown is this. Will the Antifa and BLM crowds continue to expand their activities? If so, we may see a lot more disruption of the Republican campaigns than we have seen so far. Oh, and one more question. If the president wins, as I believe he will, what will they do next? Will they refuse to accept election results and continue their war against him? We'll talk about this a little bit later. But a lot depends on who wins further down the ticket in both parties and how much support they will give the president moving forward. 
There are a lot of unknowns here, and the polls, well, we can't count on them at all because in the end, they're mostly wrong. On Saturday night, the president was in his best form. If he continues like that, Joe Biden will have a hard time beating him in November. Joe Biden may have a hard time altogether because he now seems afraid to come out of his basement and campaign. But the Democrats have his back, and it looks like they plan to control him anyway. He will be their puppet and take the path of least resistance whenever he can. Joe is an old man. I wish him luck as he travels down the road he is on now, but I don't want to see him in the White House. This will be an interesting year and maybe a very sad race all around. Donald Trump is a showman. After the rally, we heard that he was angry about the turnout and the failure of his team to anticipate it. But you couldn't tell that when you saw him on Saturday night. And his team later said that that was just another fake news report. I thought he looked relaxed, and he touched on all the points that his audience expected. He said what they wanted to hear, and they rewarded him with cheers, lots of cheers, and they held up his signs for the cameras. It was a good show. And one more thing, and this is sure. Trump has been warned, and I have no doubt that he will make every effort to preempt any future attack designed to undermine his campaign events. And there's another part to this story, and it's far more serious than the teens requesting scores of invitations and not showing up. The president and the vice president were originally supposed to speak outside the 19,000-seat arena to supporters who couldn't get in. But the media reported on the chaos outside. In the area where Trump was supposed to speak, agitators had picked fights with Trump supporters and created as much chaos as they could. So that was the excuse that the Secret Service gave for not holding that outdoor event. But there was another story that was not so public and much more ominous that may also explain why the outdoor event was canceled. Intelligence sources reported that busloads of agitators had been brought in and put up in hotel rooms to descend on the rally on Saturday night. They were paid for, no doubt, by the big bucks behind the BLM crowd. We talked about that earlier. And the intelligence continued that this entourage included two snipers with an assignment to shoot the president. It didn't happen, and we may never know the inside story. But it's food for thought. This could be a very nasty campaign season. There's a strong feeling that things in this country are getting out of control and more violent every day. This past weekend, Father's Day weekend, and the same weekend as Juneteenth as well, was a violent one, a very violent one. In Chicago, at least 104 people were shot, and 14 of them died, including five children. We've already talked about the violence in Seattle, and violent scenes are being played out in Atlanta, Los Angeles, New York City, as well as other cities around the country. Let's stay with Seattle for a minute because that's the ultimate BLM catastrophe. And it proves a point that those of us who support law and order have been trying to make. CHOP, as they like to call it, is a lawless state. No police, no law enforcement of any kind. But that doesn't mean that all is peace and love. As I said before, CHOP is a war zone. There is no law and there certainly is no order. 
Stores and businesses are either boarded up or destroyed, and drug use is ubiquitous. The people who lived there before all this started to happen are now living in terror, if they're still there at all. And you may wonder why some of them decided to stay despite the chaos. Well, if you've made your life, the better part of your adult life, in a place, and you've built a home, and you've built a business, and chaos comes, you may not want to leave it in order to save it. I know I might. But anyway, the powers that be, whoever they are, in shop, have come up with a plan. Here's what they propose. They want to create a safe zone for drug use because they are admitting now that drugs are actually an issue there. They want the safe zone cordoned off from the rest of the area so that the drug use will be limited to that area and volunteers will supervise and ensure that the drug use only happens there. Doesn't that sound a little bit like the drug police? And then they want all CHOP events to end by 8 p.m. so that the area will empty out at night and there will be fewer people there in the evening to create problems. So who will enforce the rules? Again, this is the event police. Someone connected with CHOP created a, quote, Voices of CHOP, unquote, which is a group of BIPOC and white volunteers and activists, unquote, who began posting this plan on social media. BIPOC, by the way, means, quote, black or indigenous people of color, unquote. The suggestion for operational hours would, they believe, quote, encourage CHOP to stop being a chaotic, immobile zone in the late and early morning hours. Good luck with that. So it looks like the people of CHOP are finally getting it. That life without police has its ups and downs, mostly downs, particularly when a crisis occurs, like a multiple shooting, and there are no police or emergency services to respond. Well, in any case, wherever they think they're going, it looks like they're running out of time. Earlier on, Seattle's mayor, Jenny Durkin, had said that the zone was a big block party or a summer of love. Those were her words. That was until she learned about the crime and the lawlessness and the violence and the poor people who were stuck there and scared to death. The shootings were, it seems, the last straw. So on Monday, she said this, quote, The cumulative impacts of the gatherings and the protests and the nighttime atmosphere and violence has led to increasingly difficult circumstances for our businesses and residents, unquote. She added, The impacts have increased and the safety has decreased, unquote. No kidding. She used a lot of unnecessary $5 words to express a very simple concept. Civil society needs law and order, and that means police. But, like Cuomo, she refused to take responsibility for anything that she had done to contribute to the situation in the first place. In other words, Mayor Durkin, who allowed this whole thing to happen, now regrets it, but she won't admit her role in letting it happen. And she plans to dismantle it after all. What a hero. So after only two weeks, which for the residents of these homes and owners of these stores were probably the longest two weeks of their lives, the chop zone will be chopped. And good riddance. Mayor Durkin not only allowed it to happen, she even ordered the police chief to pull her offices from the East Precinct and allow it to be trashed, 
And now, after two weeks of chaos, three shootings and one death, and a crime spree I don't even want to think about, she is apparently having second thoughts. I hope the people of Seattle will remember all this and will have serious thoughts when election time rolls around and Jenny Durkin is up for re-election. She has created a disaster which, for some of her constituents, has destroyed their lives forever. I doubt they will ever forget or forgive. And one more thing, it may be stating the obvious, but have you noticed that all this anarchy, chop, the riots in the streets, the tearing down of statues, the shootings, the lootings, are mostly happening in cities that are run by Democrats? In states that are run by Democrats? That's hardly a coincidence. I want to say something here lest you get the wrong impression. There have been grave injustices done to people of color in this country and around the world, and I do think that there are many ways that we can improve the fairness in our society that will give all people an opportunity to succeed. But violence, destruction, and canceling our history is not the way to do it. And if we truly want to live in a country that provides equal opportunity for all, regardless of skin color or religion, we need to build it peacefully, not by destroying what we value, but by building together to make a society that works for all of us, because it respects all Americans, all Americans. Now, earlier on, I promised you that I would say a few words about the AOC primary. Here are the early results as of 11.30 p.m. New York time. They were disappointing, but there seems to be no doubt that AOC is the winner in this race by a large margin. With 74% of the precincts reporting, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez was way ahead of her nearest opponent, Michelle Caruso Cabrera. AOC had 20,653 votes compared to Caruso Cabrera's 5,578 votes. You know, I didn't follow this race as carefully as I normally would because there were so many other news events happening all at once. But I did hope for the best, but it didn't happen. It is difficult to imagine how the major part of her constituency could have been happy with her efforts to undermine Amazon's bid to bring 25,000 new jobs to her area. 25,000 jobs with an average salary of $150,000, and another 1,300 jobs that were planned for the construction phase of the project. But all that disappeared when she undermined Amazon's efforts to bring its headquarters to New York. And yet, she won. The path that Ocasio-Cortez is taking is one of the most destructive to our country that she could choose. Her posturing and her pronouncements are so full of hypocrisy and disdain for the people who elected her, it is difficult to understand how the down-to-earth people in her district don't see through her. But they apparently don't, and she is one step closer to another two years in Washington. The next contest will be in November, and whoever her opponent is, that race will be a tough one. But if she is re-elected, she will bring America closer to the brink than ever before. Now, after the break, I want to tell you a few stories that I honestly found it difficult to believe. 
One is about a 12-year-old girl who is charged with a felony, and another one about a state senator who thinks parents are not equipped to teach their children. So stay tuned. AmericaOutloud.com is the voice of liberty and justice for all. Well, as we celebrate our four-year anniversary, thank you for making it all possible. We are a grassroots movement of patriots, blogs, podcasts, video, and 24-7 talk radio on our free apps on Apple, Android, or Alexa. We are the vision of the voices America Out Loud Talk Radio. Hello, this is Lieutenant Randy Sutton, the host of Blue Lives Radio, the voice of American law enforcement. I am a 34-year police veteran. I am also the founder and CEO of an organization that stands behind injured and disabled law enforcement officers. It is called The Wounded Blue. Our website is thewoundedblue.org. We have produced a film. It is an important film. I urge you to watch it. The film details what happens when a police officer or law enforcement officer is shot or stabbed or beaten or disabled, seriously injured in the line of duty. Most people think they are taken care of medically and financially. The reality may be quite different. It is called The Wounded Blue, Service, Sacrifice, Betrayed. The film is available on Amazon, iTunes, and the Microsoft Store. a story about a little girl with a finger gun. It didn't happen yesterday or even last week. It happened last October. But it just came across my desk in an email and it is so preposterous that in these crazy days it somehow seems relevant and appropriate to mention it here. It's an important story that sheds some light on the state of our growing national malaise. When you were a kid, Did you ever point your finger like a gun and go bang, bang? Most of us have. Well, this story is about a little girl who did that. And boy, was she ever sorry. This took place in a middle school in Kansas. Now, I always thought that people in the heartland had more plain common sense than people on either coast. But this story certainly does not support that theory. It seems that during a class discussion, one student asked another student if she could kill five people in the class, who would they be? Now, admittedly, that was about as stupid a question as any I can think of. But then, I'm a little older and presumably a little wiser. Anyway, the girl allegedly made a finger pistol, like we have all used at one time or another, and pointed it at four other students and then at herself. And because she did that, she was sent to Principal Jeremy McDonald's office. I only mention his name because he was even more stupid than the student who asked the original question. And he was supposed to be the adult in the room. So he called in the school resource officer, even dumber, who recommended that the girl be arrested. And so they called the police who detained her. She was released to her mother later on, but before that, before she got to go home, the police 
who were as dumb as the principal and the resource officer and her teacher. The police arrested her, pulled her out of the school in handcuffs, and charged her with a felony for threatening. Remember, she's 12 years old. But wait, it gets worse. Because two other students in the same school district actually brought real guns to school. And they didn't face any felony charges at all. There was no suggestion that those kids had planned to use the guns at school. So both were charged in juvenile court with a misdemeanor for possession of a firearm. So here's the takeaway. If you bring a real gun to school, don't worry, it's only a misdemeanor. But if you point your half-cocked index finger at someone where there is no danger at all, that's a felony. Is this what they mean when they say that someone went off half-cocked? I think the whole system that thought up this brilliance is half-cocked. I hope that someone who is smarter than any of the people in this story will find a way to change the laws so that no other child will be charged with a felony for pointing her finger gun. And the happy ending, if you can call it that, is that the little girl is now living with her grandfather. But she's living in California, so who knows what will happen next. That all sounds backwards to me, but hey, I'm just a dumb kid from Boston. What do I know? Now, here's another story from this week's news. And this might raise your eyebrows a bit. New Hampshire State Senator Gene Deitch, a Democrat, of course, said this at a committee hearing last week. She was promoting a bill that would stop the State Board of Education from creating a new way of allocating high school graduation credit. She said, quote, This idea of parental choice, that's great if the parents are well educated. There are some families that's perfect for. But to make it available to everyone? No, I think you're asking for a huge amount of trouble. Unquote. Her comments were consistent with the leftist ideology that supports the belief that the nanny state is far superior to parents when it comes to teaching and raising our kids. A Republican colleague asked her this question. Is it your belief that only well-educated parents can make proper decisions for what's in the best interest of their children? To which she replied, quote, In a democracy, and particularly in the United States, Public education has been the means for people to move up to greater opportunities, for each generation to be able to succeed more than their parents have. Unquote. Her comments are consistent with a leftist ideology that supports the belief that the nanny state is far superior to parents when it comes to teaching and raising our kids. A Republican colleague asked her this question. Quote, is it your belief that only well-educated parents can make proper decisions for what's in the best interest of their children? Unquote. To which she replied, quote, in a democracy, and particularly in the United States, public education has been the means for people to move up to greater opportunities, for each generation to be able to succeed more than their parents have. Unquote. Well, that hardly answers the question. And in fact, it serves as a stellar example of what is wrong with the educational system to which our children are subjected. She has apparently not read the statistics that show that our kids are now testing lower in math and science and literature than they have ever done before. They don't know how to speak the language properly because they're not taught grammar 
and they don't know the capital of their state because they don't learn geography, and they don't know the name of our vice president or how many people are in Congress because they never learned civics. Our children are getting the worst education today than they have ever gotten before, and we are behind the rest of the world in virtually every educational discipline. So her premise is completely wrong. Not all parents are cut out to be teachers. Some parents have very little patience with their children's learning process. But I've seen so many children thrive on the decisions that their parents make on their behalf. And so many children who are forever mentally crippled by the leftist ideology that passes for education these days. I was one of those kids who benefited from my parents' decision about my schooling. I was in third grade when my teacher, Mrs. Baldwin, complained to my parents that I spent all my time looking out the window instead of paying attention in class. I was ADD, but no one knew what that was at the time. They just said I was daydreaming and not paying attention, and she couldn't have that in her class. So my parents, wisely, found a private school for me to attend. It was terribly expensive, and I know it kept my father up many nights trying to figure out how to pay for it. But I went there anyway for six years until my dad could no longer manage it. And then I returned to public school where my grades dropped and I got lost in the crowd. But those six years in private school set me up for life. I barely remember the last three years of high school, but I remember with great clarity the lessons I learned at that private school where I spent far less time looking out the window and much more time being actively engaged in the lessons that were taught with so much imagination and excitement. It was one of the greatest gifts that my parents ever gave me. Our democratic republic depends on our being smart enough to make decisions about whom we want to govern us. And that means you, Senator Deitch. If you think we are too dumb to educate our children, do you think we are too dumb to decide whether you are the candidate we need? Just how dumb do you think we are? Now, I want to spend a few minutes talking about the cancel culture and Aunt Jemima. If you're like me, you grew up with Aunt Jemima pancakes and syrup on your breakfast table. It didn't remind me of slavery. It reminded me of something yummy to eat. And it wasn't even real maple syrup. It had lots of processed sugar instead of the kind that is found in real maple trees. But it sure tasted good anyway, and it was a staple in our kitchen cupboards. So who was Aunt Jemima, and why does the left want to cancel her? The original Aunt Jemima was a woman named Susan Green, born a slave in 1834, who was thought to have been the first black woman to become a millionaire in America. And it was all because of Aunt Jemima. She was the epitome of success for black women, and she blazed a trail for other black women who followed her. She was hired by the R.T. Davis Milling Company in Chicago to become the living image of their brand. She became Aunt Jemima, and she wasn't alone. There were several other black women who also became the personification for the Aunt Jemima trademark. There is much that is unknown about her life, and it's not always clear how much that we do know is fable and how much is real. But what is clear is that she was the first black woman to become a national symbol of a commercial product. And even though the symbol itself was an affable, ample, 
smiling black woman wearing the clothes of a black kitchen slave. The role she played made her wealthy and independent enough to enable her to work in Chicago as a missionary and an activist for the poor. At least 10 other black women also played the role of Aunt Jemima over the years, including Lillian Richard from Texas, Rosie Lee Moore, who was also from Texas, Anna Robinson, and Edith Wilson. And some of their relatives, as well as historians and pancake lovers, are upset that Aunt Jemima is not just being retired, but canceled. According to Breitbart, Larnell Evans Sr., the great-grandson of Anna Short Harrington, who began playing Aunt Jemima at the 1935 World's Fair, said, quote, This is an injustice for me and my family. This is part of my history, sir, he said in an interview with Patch.com. The racism they talk about using images from slavery, that comes from the other side, white people, unquote. And he went on to say, she worked for that Quaker Oats for 20 years. She traveled all the way around the United States and Canada, making pancakes as Aunt Jemima for them. This woman served all those people, and it was after slavery, unquote. And he wants her to be remembered, and he also wants what he calls restitution for lost royalties from her work. Well, in spite of the dissatisfaction of Aunt Jemima's relatives and fans, it looks like she will be retired, and her name and her picture will be removed from the products they all help to make famous. Rather than embracing our past and using it to build a better future, we once again are obliterating it and throwing it into the dustbin of the history that we don't want to remember. Now I want to spend a few minutes talking about the battle that is brewing in this country and may be about to explode into an all-out war. It's about two totally different ideologies that are diametrically opposed to each other. Free market economy and freedom, which is what we call capitalism, and top-down government control of every aspect of our lives, which is tyranny, and that is what we call socialism. Donald Trump stands for the free market and the Constitution. The Democrats are moving further and further away from that and towards socialism. And the friction that this is causing may split the country in two. I raised the question before about what would happen, what will happen if and when Donald Trump wins the election in November. Does it depend on what the margin is between winner and loser? Maybe. But there seems to be a development within the Democrat Party that goes far beyond that. It has come to the point where they refuse to accept the voice of the people if the people don't vote in their favor. Maybe that's why they are moving towards socialism. This country was founded to offer freedom, liberty, to every citizen and to provide the framework for each person to be able to raise himself up to whatever height he can achieve. But socialists insist on having control over what the people do, how they learn, where they work, and maybe even what they think. Just take a look at the Green New Deal and see how much control the socialists want to have over our lives. So to get back to the question, what will the Democrats do 
if Donald Trump wins the election, and there's a good chance that he will. What will happen if the Democrats refuse to accept the results? They've done it before. I think we've had a glimpse of what will happen over the last few weeks since the killing of George Floyd and the riots that followed. We saw it in Seattle. We saw it in Chicago. We saw it in New York City. We saw it in California. You see, it's more than just a groundswell of disappointment. People are passionate about their candidates, and in today's world, it looks like a major calamity if they don't win. But this is America, and in the past, our nation has distinguished itself by its ability to accept the results of an election and move on. In 1948, it was hardly a tight race. Thomas A. Dewey, a Republican governor from New York, was running away with the polls. He was running against Harry Truman, somebody people barely knew. He was the underdog from Missouri. And the outcome was clear to almost everybody, so clear that late that night, Truman was photographed with a big grin on his face, holding up the early morning edition of the Chicago Daily Tribune with the headline, Dewey Defeats Truman, unquote. So why was Truman grinning? Because despite all the polls, all the predictions, when the votes were counted, Truman's underdog ticket had 303 electoral votes and 49.6% of the popular vote, while Dewey only had 189 electoral votes and only 45.1% of the popular vote. And do you know what happened next? Americans shook their heads, and then they went back to work, they stayed friends, and they moved on. Because that's what Americans are supposed to do. It's what we've always done. Did you know that when our founding fathers were crafting our Constitution, they fought like cats and dogs? But in the end, they found compromises and they worked out their differences. That's what we're supposed to do. But something happened to us in the 2000 election. It was a tight race, and in the end, George W. Bush won 271 electoral votes, one more than the required 270. And he defeated Democrat candidate Al Gore, who received 266 electoral votes. But it all hinged on the state of Florida and its 25 electoral votes. In the end, the Supreme Court stepped in and gave the election to Bush. Twenty years later, Democrats still say that Bush stole the election. And their pattern of not accepting election results has gotten worse with every lost election. America has become so polarized that it is difficult to imagine how we can return to a more civilized society. And now, with the demonstrations and riots, with the destruction of the symbols of our history, with the growing terrorism in the streets of our cities, how do we salvage our great country and bring peace back to our neighborhood? President Trump has promised to do just that. And I think... He needs to have the chance. Well, we've come to the end of another hour. It goes by so quickly. The news just keeps coming and we will keep following it. Lots of good stories coming up for next week. I hope you have a good week, a safe week. And I look forward to having you back again next week. You've been listening to the news magazine on the America Out Loud Network. I'm Alana Friedman. And this has been the Friedman Report.